Section 2 of The Romance of the Romanoffs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Romance of the Romanoffs by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 2 The Descent to Autocracy. It is sometimes said that the Slav people lost its democratic institutions because it was too pacific to defend them. It is true that an agricultural people would tend to be more pacific than hunting tribes like the Asiatics who surrounded them, but the native peacefulness of the Slav has probably been exaggerated. The early Russians seem to have been as much addicted to hunting and fishing as to tilling the soil, and the long winter, when all agricultural work was suspended for six months, would encourage the men to hunt the furry animals which abounded. Certain it is that both the monk Nestor and the Greek emperor Maurice represent the primitive Slav as far from meek, and the chronicle informs us of constant and even deadly quarrelling. The truth is that the democracy of the Slavs was too little developed. It was nearer akin to anarchism than to socialism, and the mind of the race was not as yet sufficiently advanced to grasp the political exigencies of the new situation. There was no national consciousness, and there could be no national defense and administration, because there was no nation, and a body of disconnected communities scattered over a wide area was in those days bound to succumb to marauders. Russian historians of the official school eagerly point out that the situation plainly called for a monarchic institution and that the monarchs rendered great service in welding the scattered communities into a nation. That they did unite the people and make the great Russia of today is obvious. It is equally obvious that, with rare exceptions, they did this in their own interest, and that in all cases they exacted a reward which made serfs of the independent Slavs, sowed corruption amongst the rising middle class, and laid upon all an intolerable burden. The period of the Norse warrior chiefs and their descendants lasted about three centuries, and it fully exposes the fallacy of the monarchic principle. From being military servants, the Norsemen rapidly became, as is customary, princes and parasites as long as they discharge their duty, binding the communities and securing for them the necessary peace against external foes. This departure from the primitive democracy might be regarded as merely a regrettable necessity. But the sheep soon found that the protecting dog was first cousin of the wolf, the principle of hereditary succession, and the practice of providing for all sons and relatives, soon led to a worse confusion than ever, and the distracted and weakened country was prepared for a foreign invasion. The long and sanguinary history of the descendants of Rurik may be briefly sketched before we see how the autocratic Mongols beat a path for the autocratic Tsars. Oleg, who had united the Slav tribes under his ill-defined rule, was murdered in the year 945. 
to the north of kiev a tribe known as the drevlians tree folk wandered in the forests and paid a reluctant and uncertain tribute in furs when Oleg tried to enforce his tax upon these, they captured him and tied him to two young trees in such fashion that, when the bent trees were released, Oleg's body was torn asunder. Oleg's widow, Olga, was a handsome Valkyrie of the masterful northern type, and she sent her armies to scatter the thunders of Thor among the wild foresters. It is said that she afterwards visited the Greek capital and was one to the Christian religion. She lives as St. Olga in the calendar of the Russian church. Her successor involved the Russians in long and terrible wars with Constantinople to enforce his ambitious claim to Bulgaria, and at his death the fierce feuds and murders of his three sons plunged the country into a condition of bloody anarchy. From this sordid strife of the shepherds whom the Slavs had hired to protect them, there emerged in 972 over the corpses of his brothers the blonde beast St. Vladimir, the founder of Christianity in Russia. To what extent the lusty and lustful Prince Vladimir was, as the priestly chronicles maintain, transformed into a saint during his life, we need not stay to consider. He seems to have been converted as superficially as his prototype, the Emperor Constantine. He was married to a beautiful nun who had been torn from a convent during one of the raids upon the Greek Empire, and whom he had taken from his murdered brother, and thousands of concubines relieved the comparative tedium of her companionship. The monastic chronicle tells us, in trite language, that he at length wearied of sin, and sought more substantial spiritual aid than the paganism of his fathers could afford. Judaism, Mohammedanism, and Christianity now offered their rival assurances to such a promising penitent, and it is said that Vladimir, with the broad-mindedness of a modern Japanese, sent his servants to inquire into the merits of the three religions. The rich ritual of the Greek Christians at Constantinople prevailed over the more sober practices of the Mohammedans and the less consoling assurances of the religion of the Old Testament, and Vladimir became a Christian and a saint. But the chronicles also recount that Vladimir, whose principality of Russia was now so important that it could sustain wars with the Greeks, sought a matrimonial alliance with the royal house of Constantinople, and the prosy imagination of our time finds here a safer clue to the development. The emperors Basil and Constantine replied that the hand of their sister Anne would be bestowed upon the experienced barbarian if he would consent to baptism and Greek priests, who were apt also to be courtiers, were sent to expound to him the new religion. Vladimir readily consented to pay so small a price for so great an honor and advantage. He threw into the river the idols of the Russian gods. These carven figures had been introduced since the settlement in Russia, and lent his energy and truculence to the extirpation of paganism. 
his people were driven in troops into the rivers the greek priests pronounced over them the sacred formula and in a very short time the natured gods of the old slavs and norsemen were turned into devils and the cross of christ glittered above gilded domes in the wooden settlements of the land vladimir was so generous to the new clergy that he died in the odor of sanctity but the sins of vladimir's pagan manhood lived after him seven sons by various legitimate mothers claimed the succession to his dominions and there ensued such bloody anarchy as the handsome teutonic princes no matter what gods they worshipped knew how to create as usual the fitter to survive in such a world the more lusty and less scrupulous emerged from the struggle and prince iaroslav one of the heroes of early russian history reunited the various regions under his rule iaroslav has been compared not quite ineptly to charlemagne from novgorod which his father had left him he cut his way to kiev and definitely made the southern city the metropolis of the country kiev was enriched and adorned with a splendor which in the mind of the russians rivaled that of constantinople the southern rivers now bore thousands of greek artists and architects musicians and scholars priests and courtiers to the new capital of barbarism four hundred churches soon shone like gilt mushrooms in the summer sun and the grateful clergy discovered that a monarchy which rested on a divine foundation in constantinople could hardly have an inferior basis in kiev Yaroslav, it is true was not a monarch in title russia had no constitution or political organization it was still semi-barbaric in culture and judicial procedure the duel the ordeal and the payment of blood money still flourished and literacy existed only in the form of feeble lamps here and there in the vast darkness it must be remembered that constantinople itself was with all its splendor of gold and mosaics and jewels and silks half barbaric in its moral complexion the most sordid and brutal crimes disgraced its palace life on the shores of the sea of marmara and the most revolting penalties of vice and crime were publicly inflicted the discovery by modern apologists that there was a glow-worm here and there does not relieve the terrible gloom of the dark ages in such an age amidst so scattered and helpless a people iaroslav needed no kingly title to enable him to act as monarch to sustain the new splendor of kiev and his court his sisters and daughters married into the royal families of poland norway france and hungary a larger tribute from the people was needed and it was not meekly solicited russian historians of the old school have dilated upon the magnificence with which iaroslav invested his capital and the measure of prestige which russia gained in the eyes of the world they do not point out that this concentration of light at kiev and the court darkened the life of the russian people for the first time we now encounter the odious name for a child of the soil mujik 
foreigners who lightly repeat that name to-day are unaware that it is in origin a term of disdain it means mannequin the warriors in glittering armor or shining silks who gathered about the court were the prince's men the vast mass of the people whose labor ultimately paid for this magnificence were mannequins the burden fell most heavily upon the scattered peasantry not only were the legitimate taxes wrung from them but the military leaders exacted tribute to support their own splendor and pleasure the feudal system which now prevailed over the remainder of europe was not introduced the land was still the possession of the people and military chiefs remained about the court instead of raising as they did where stone abounded massive provincial castles from which they might enslave the peasantry and even defy the ruler but in their excursions the soldiers behaved as wantonly as feudal barons of the west and the people sank under the burden slavery still flourished in christendom and many a slav found his way to the distant market at constantinople moreover under the degenerate greek influence there was introduced the practice of flogging and torture which the rough chivalry of the northerners had hitherto avoided to say that the unity of faith the protection against invaders and the introduction of art and a small amount of mediocre culture compensate for these evils is an historical mockery the death of iaroslav at once revealed the insecurity and selfishness of the regime he had established it was followed by two hundred years of civil warfare and murderous confusion eighty-three struggles which seem worthy of the name of wars devastated russia during those two centuries and over the enfeebled frontiers the waiting tribes repeatedly poured while the guardians of the russian people slew each other for their petty principalities sons legitimate and illegitimate abounded in that world of blond warriors and the successful chief provided for each out of his dominion titles were disputed or the old title of the longer sword was boldly advanced a dozen large principalities were carved out of the princedom of iaroslav and fragments of these were constantly detached by heredity and restored by war it is not my intention to follow the grisly chronicles over this prolonged anarchy and select for admiration the heroic butcheries of some strong-armed soldier for our purpose it suffices to notice that the mass of the russian people were as a rule the passive and suffering spectators of this brutal pandemonium during the summers they sowed and gathered their corn and flax, and the long winters occupied them with the making of clothes and the quest of fur. The mirror was still the centre of every village, but a tithe of its produce had now to go to sustain this costly petty monarchy, a tithe to support the whitened monasteries and gold-domed churches and a tithe to repair the damage when the tornado of civil war or some fierce band of asiatics had passed over their district 
there were we shall see provinces of russia where the larger intelligence of the townsmen saw that the proper thing to do was to form a strong republic armed in its own defence these still hated tyranny and sustained the old tradition of the race but the greater part of the Russian people were not sufficiently developed to perceive this, or were too scattered to achieve it, and they sank under the military power they had invited to serve them. A few pages borrowed from the story of this dark period of anarchy will suffice to explain how Russia was prepared for the later schemes of the Muscovites. Kiev remained the mother of russian cities and it was natural that as its princes founded petty princedoms here and there for their descendants the more ambitious of these should invent a title to the rule of the metropolis itself or found rival cities one of the chief of these new principalities was Suzdal on the volga and the oka here at the extremity of the russia of the time a large dominion was created out of the marshes and forests and braced by incessant conflicts with the neighbouring finns george dolgoruki who after failing to get kiev had founded this principality regarded it as in an especial sense his own creation and possession and his monarchic sentiment was strengthened but the democratic tradition was not wholly obliterated, and the military caste itself, the boyars, or captains of the troops, formed some check upon the will of the prince. George's successor, therefore, Andrew Bogoliovsky, an astute and ambitious man, made a new capital of a small town or village called Vladimir. Andrew possessed the supposed miraculous painting of the face of Christ, which had once been the great treasure of Constantinople, and he professed that this gave him some special measure of divine guidance. He pitched his camp near the village of Vladimir, and shortly afterward the people of Sozdal heard with consternation that he had been divinely directed to convert the little settlement into his capital. Andrew had the great advantage of being extremely pious and generous to the clergy, as nearly every great Russian adventurer has been. The priests warmly supported him, and Vladimir soon grew into a city. Kiev still had an immeasurably greater splendor, and was in closer touch with Constantinople. Andrew raised a large army, and led it south against the metropolis. A three days' siege was followed by three days of such pillage that Kiev lost forever its supremacy. Even the churches and monasteries were looted, and the golden treasures of both palace and cathedral were carried off to enrich the aspiring city of Vladimir. Flushed with this and other triumphs, Andrew then turned his arms against the Republic of Novgorod where the old democratic spirit was best preserved, and after fierce fighting compelled it to accept a prince of his own nomination. He extended his rule in other directions, setting a conspicuous example of autocracy and ambition to the princes of Moscow, who would later issue from his blood. But Russia was not yet reduced to the state of servility which Andrew's design of supremacy required. 
In 1174 his powerful boyars rebelled and assassinated him, and the oppressed people rose in turn and vented their democratic sentiment in the pillage and slaughter of the rich. This is but one outstanding figure amidst the host of brutal soldiers or scheming princes who fill the chronicle of the time with blood. It is a wearisome repetition of the same process. A strong or unscrupulous man unites a large part of Russia under his sway. Then a group of less strong but not less ambitious sons and grandsons fight for the spoil over the helpless bodies of the peasantry. Those who succeed must reward their boyars and the clergy, and the land of Russia passes more and more into the hands of large proprietors and is worked by slaves. If you want the honey, you must kill the bees, was the characteristic remark of one of these descendants of Rorik, as he dispatched his victims. And the little restraint which their new faith imposed upon them may be gathered from the flippant retort of another princeling, who was accused of breaking an oath solemnly made over a cross. It was only a little cross." There were, as I said, northern parts where the democratic evolution proceeded healthily. Novgorod, a large northern city of a hundred thousand souls, rising in the center of a beautiful plain fringed by forests, had become a republic with wide territory and three hundred thousand subjects beyond the rude defenses of the city. There is a legend that it had rebelled even against Rurik, the first Scandinavian adventurer. It accepted of its own choice what had come to be called princes, but it endorsed or rejected them, and curtailed their powers, with a good deal of civic pride and independence. "'Come and rule us yourself, or else we will choose a prince,' the citizens said to a grand prince of Kiev, who ordered them to receive his nominee. To another grand prince, who would send his son to govern them, a later generation of citizens replied, "'Send him, if he has a head to spare.' They had even an independent church, and elected their archbishop, the old democratic Vechet, or Council of Citizens, was the central institution of the city, and the great bell summoned all to the market square whenever some business of importance called for a decision. The neighboring republics of Piskov and Vyatka were hardly less faithful to the democratic tradition. While these territories were the farthest from Constantinople, they were nearest to Germany and the Baltic, and they were enriched by the commerce which was then beginning to civilize the northern cities. Even Novgorod, we saw, felt the heavy hand of Andrew of Vladimir, and the remainder of Russia steadily lost its vitality under the drain of civil war. Upon this distracted and enfeebled population, there now fell an autocratic ruler of the most arbitrary character. The year 1237 is, in the Chronicles, one of calamities and portents. The fires which so often devoured the timber settlements of the Slavs were more numerous and destructive than ever. 
drought and famine made haggard faces over large regions and from the sky a terrifying eclipse and other portents seemed to mock their prayers for deliverance as the dreadful year passed a new evil broke upon them into the southern principalities poured crowds of fugitives from the east who told that immense hordes of ferocious and inhuman horsemen were covering the land and completing its desolation toward the close of the year the first wave of the tatars shook the southern frontiers of the slavs asia had as well as europe its adventurers and the baleful dream of conquest had lit the imagination of a tatar chief dejingis khan amidst the dreary wastes of siberia gathering about him the rough tribes of his race a swarm of hardy shepherds who knew not what a house much less a city was he led them against the civilization of the south his men lived in the saddle and each was a master in the use of the bow the sabre and the lance camels and buffaloes bore their at first scanty possessions and they moved with all the speed of devouring nomads the villages of manchuria the tame and placid cities of china and all the wide spaces of central asia were successively overrun and forced to pay tribute from the civilized chinese the wonderful and profoundly ignorant barbarian quickly learned the art of gathering taxes and enjoying luxury and he moved further west in a vague design of conquering the earth this strange and terrifying horde a cloud of fiercely yelling centaurs with troops of animals which no russian had ever seen first fell upon the southern russians in twelve twenty four their method was to press the peasantry into their service and attempt to disarm the towns with hollow assurances of friendship but in whatever way the town was taken there followed a merciless slaughter and a thorough pillage the russians alarmed by the reports of the outlying tribes sent out a great army to meet the mongols on the steppes and were crushingly defeated the mongols had however retired to asia where their dominion was not solidly established and it was a vaster army under a new khan that appeared in the south of russia in twelve thirty seven from twelve thirty seven to twelve forty the khan batu led his army of six hundred thousand men with appalling destruction across the various principalities of russia Weakened by their feuds, severed by their selfish rivalries, the various provinces fell one by one under the feet of the merciless invaders. Rape, murder, fire, and pillage were the invariable sequels of success. The Russians appealed to the nations of the nearer West to help them to dam this Asiatic flood, but the latin christians were not minded to stir themselves for semi-barbarians who did not respect the pope when the khan passed over the prostrate body of russia and advanced still further in his determination to conquer an earth of which he knew less than a child in a modern infant school the poles and hungarians at length spread their barrier of steel across his path but the Czech did not now profit Russia. 
batu retired upon russia built a city sarai on the banks of the volga beyond the limits of the principalities and began a life of organized parasitism upon the unfortunate people the comparative unity brought about by their Norse defenders had prepared the way for the Khan. The Khan was to prepare the way for the Muscovite. Again we may ignore the crowded details, the rise and fall and eternal feuds of petty princes of the Russian chronicle. What matters is that the entire country, which was then known as Russia, was overspread by a network of tax-gatherers, and the people learned to tremble at the commands of a distant autocrat. At Sarai, the Mongols established a court of barbaric magnificence, and this in time declared itself independent of the Tatar Empire in Asia, and sought the nourishment of its luxury in Russia. The Western sovereignty came to be known throughout Europe as the Golden Horde, and the Western nations heard with indifference the cynical extravagance and the occasional brutality with which it treated schismatic Slavs. No prince could now don his tattered dignity in Russia without the august permission of the semi-civilized ruler on the Volga and a system was soon evolved which enabled the courtiers and concubines of the khan to share the good fortune of their lord in the constant disputes about succession claimants to the various slav principalities made the perilous journey to sarai and the richness of the presents they brought sufficed to illumine the obscurity of their titles occasionally a prince whose loyalty to the mongols was suspected was summoned to sarai and not a few who could not pass the humiliating tests left their bones among the mohammedan tatars to those who bent their backs or tendered the cup with servile respect the khan was gracious they returned with power to extort the taxes for the tatars and a large additional sum for themselves if their people or rival princes were restive a troop of the dreaded tatar horse was put at their disposal and the lash and the sabre cowed every attempt at revolt the spying and flogging with which the servants of the khan protected their masters interests were copied by the slav norse princes the Byzantine civilization had itself introduced many devices of autocratic barbarism for the jails of constantinople especially the dungeons of the superb imperial palace witnessed ghastly tortures and mutilations the cruelty of the asiatic completed this machinery of the later czars and the princes of moscow were the readiest of all to be the tax-gatherers of the khan and the pupils of his unscrupulous ministers the scattered slavs had after the three or four years of terror returned from the forest to their burned villages and their plundered towns the gold and silver had gone from their churches the inmates of their nunneries were the playthings of the asiatic officers their democracy was a mockery their industry soon healed the torn face of the country but lands and lives now belonged to the foreign master one-tenth of all their produce must be paid in taxes, and they might at any time be summoned to do military service. 
Kiev was in large part a ruin. Sozdel, Moscow, Ryazan, and other cities were despoiled. Even Novgorod and Piskov had, after a bloody resistance, to present their fleece to the shearer. The miserable condition of the Slavs was further darkened by the behavior of their Christian neighbors on the west. The Swedes, pleading that the men of Novgorod hindered the conversion to the true faith of the remaining pagans of the north, induced the Pope to declare a holy crusade, with the customary spiritual and temporal advantages, against Russia, and a zealous army advanced against Novgorod. It was shattered, but the Catholic zeal of the West was not extinguished. The Knights of the Sword, the German order which enforced baptism as truculently as the early Mohammedans had enforced the Koran, next appeared on the Russian frontier and took Piskov. The Teutonic adventurers were not less formidable in white mantle and red cross than they had been in the dress of the pagan Norsemen, and were hardly less ferocious, but they had to retreat before the stalwart Novgorodians. In the fourteenth century, however, the united Lithuanians and Poles crossed into Russia and added to the miseries of the people. Only half a dozen of the Russian principalities could hold out against the invaders. The Tatars were now in decay, and the red spears of the Lithuanian knights were even seen as far south as the Black Sea. It is to this demoralization of the Russians, rather than to any direct Tatar influence, that we must turn our attention. There was little mingling of Mongol and Slav blood, beyond the occasional marriage of a Tatar princess by some sycophantic prince, and the enslavement of Russian women in the spacious harems of the Asiatics. Scratch a Russian and you will find a Tatar is an untruth. Few races in the civilized world are purer in blood than the Russian Slavs. Nor did the Khans modify the Russian culture more than the levying of tribute demanded. With the clergy they were on friendly terms, knowing their power over the ignorant peasants, and they suppressed neither the mirror of the village nor the veche of the town, as long as it furnished the collective tribute. On the other hand, they entirely broke the original spirit of independence. They organized the country for purposes of extortion, and disorganized it for purposes of self-defense. They helped to convert the brutal and masterful Norsemen into a calculating and coldly selfish prince, and they encouraged the subjection of women, which the teaching of the Byzantine priests and monks had begun. End of section 2